0: The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. With the score for Superman, John Williams once again created effective leitmotifs or themes to aid in his musical storytelling. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show, I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode has us flying through even more of the iconic themes found in Superman the Movie, a film from 1978 by Warner Brothers Pictures, directed by Richard Donner, with a film score by John Williams. On the last episode, we laid the groundwork for how Superman was to be framed from a musical and storytelling perspective. We covered the main themes for Superman and for his home planet of Krypton. Ah, sorry, Krypton. Well, we almost covered them. There are still more themes to discuss. Themes that involve major parts of the movie, like its villains, like Smallville, like Krypton and its powerful crystals, one of which in particular creates Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And of course, a very, very important theme that covers the love story between Superman, and Daily Planet reporter Lois Lane. It's this love theme that I want to kick off the show with, as it's one of the most important and iconic themes in the whole score. It's even featured in the main credits, along with the Superman call to action or fanfare, and the Superman march itself. It even has its own concert suite treatment from Williams. It's a theme that goes like this. you'll notice. It's very beautiful, but also playful, and as Mike Mattesino calls it, somewhat metropolitan and modern. It has kind of a forward motion, a rhythm, and it isn't quite as lyrical as, say, Princess Leia's theme from Star Wars. It's a bit more uplifting, more fun, and also a bit more flexible in terms of how it can be treated musically. Let's take a look at the main melody here. It starts out as a simple triad or major chord before taking a giant interval leap of a major sixth here. More on that later. This triad, this spelling out of a major chord might sound familiar if we consider some of the music that I played in the last episode from Superman Shows of the Past. There's that triadic sound. This, as it turns out, is pure coincidence, or perhaps a shared musical instinct, between John Williams and composers of the past for how to musically depict a Superman story. According to Williams, he never studied Superman music from the past. Quote, "...although Superman had been in existence since 1938, prior to Williams' score, there was no single theme that identified him to the public." I didn't research any of it, Williams admits. I just did what seemed to me to be the right musical cue and identification for Superman, end quote. So as it turns out, this major triad and presumably the fourths and fifths that we covered in the last episode are pure instinct and a shared musical sensibility that borrows from the 19th century tradition. Anyway, so right off the bat, We're off to a very Superman-esque start with this love theme. Yada-di. And then it does a trademark leap of a major sixth, something that Williams did several times in this period of his writing. He did this with Leia's theme. He did it with Han Solo and the princess. He did it with Marion's theme from Raiders of the Lost Ark, etc. For more on those pieces of music, please check out my episodes on Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Star Wars films. Anyway, another part of this melody, besides the triad, and the trademark Williams Major 6 from this era. Another trademark is going from a one major chord to a two-major chord with a one in the bass. This, Superman, is his first big blockbuster where he does this. But he will repeat this technique. So first of all, we have it in this, this love theme for Superman. We'll have it again two years later in 1980, in The Empire Strikes Back, for Yoda's theme... And then again in 1982, two years after that, he will build his entire operatic score for E.T. around this as well. But it's used here very, very, very effectively. Let's take a listen. There it is, there's the two chord. And then the melody gets playful, both rhythmically and harmonically. And then here it repeats, and now goes to a minor tonality, speaking a bit about danger, or mystery of the unknown. And now it really takes off and flies, jumping up a minor seventh, an even bigger interval leap, as our couple flies together way up in the sky. And now an even bigger interval leap, an octave, as they soar to even greater heights. And they gently float down a bit here. Great melodies tell great stories. And this is a great melody. This is just my opinion about melodies in general. But I believe that great melodic material like this is able to withstand whatever permutation or musical arrangement you throw at it. What we heard here is very sweet, very gentle arrangement, but the melody also plays really well against the main title, which is how we hear it at the top of the movie in the opening credits. So the melody is very flexible and can be treated a lot of different ways. I also believe that great melodies can stand on their own with or without lyrics. Like in a song. And that certainly proved to be the case here as I'm about to tell you the following fascinating story about this love theme. Or should I call it, Can You Read My Mind? I want to start with a personal reference. When I was a kid, about 12 years old, I was doing children's theater a lot, attending recitals, etc. I once heard a friend of mine, let's call her Jenny, I once heard her start to sing a song at a recital I was attending called Can You Read My Mind? Must have been in the sixth grade. As she started singing, belting out the lyrics, I sat up in my chair and said, What? What? She's singing Superman. I love that movie. Wait, wait, wait. She's singing what Lois Lane is thinking in the movie and saying in her mind. I looked around and nobody else was sharing my reaction. I couldn't believe it. Afterwards, I asked her if I could look at her sheet music, and sure enough, it was Can You Read My Mind from Superman the Movie, music by John Williams with lyrics by Leslie Percuse. Years later, I would learn the true behind-the-scenes story of how we did and did not get a My Heart Will Go On type of song in Superman the Movie. Let's start with the song itself. Here is a recording of artist Maureen McGovern singing Can You Read My Mind from Superman from her 1979 self-titled album. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is you do to me? You don't know who you are, just a friend another star here I am like a kid out of school holding hands with the god I'm a fool will you look at me quivering like a little girl shivering you can see your right eyes through me And now, here's what we got in the final movie. This is how the music and Bercuse's lyrics appear in the final cut. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. You look at me, quivering, like a little girl. Shivering, you can see right through me. Can you read my mind? So, how did we get here to this almost sprechstimma version as the final that we all know? Here's a quote from Mike Mattesino's liner notes from the Film Score Monthly box set of the music from Superman. Quote: One cue was saved for a final session on November fourth because the scene had been the subject of debate since it had been edited. The final part of what became known as the flying sequence was filmed with the intention of including a song. Leslie Bercuse was commissioned to write the lyrics, his first collaboration with Williams since Goodbye Mr. Chips. I wrote Can You Read My Mind to the completed film sequence, Bercuse explains, timing the lyric and its meaning precisely to the image and the music. As I understood it, Tony Tennille was to record it for the film. Salkind recalls, Producer Pierre Spengler wanted the song. Everybody had an opinion except me. I wasn't sure about it. With no consensus, Williams prepared three versions of the cue. A light pop accompaniment for the vocalist, a non-vocal version in the same arrangement, and an orchestral version. The scoring sessions ended with the recording of all three. A decision was not made until Donner was in New York and Williams had returned to Los Angeles. Donner says, quote, I finally realized that I liked having the lyrics, but it didn't work for me with a voice other than Margot Kidder's, the actor who played Lois Lane. Kidder recounts what transpired next. Here's Margot Kidder, quote, Donner called and said, Margot, you gotta do this song. Can you sing? And I said, no, not really. But he said, well, I want you to go over to Johnny Williams' house. So I go, and John has Oscars and Grammys and Emmys on every square inch of mantle or tabletop all over the house, and he gave me these lyrics, and I tried to sing, and his face just fell. And he called Donner and said, she can't sing. She's not going to sing this. But Donner just kept insisting. So I took the music and practiced. A week later, I was in New Jersey to start filming the Amityville Horror, and they had me come into a little studio in Manhattan to record. So I sang my heart out, and I got louder, and I thought, oh, I must be doing great. Nobody's saying anything. And finally, Donner came up and said, um, sweetie, could you talk it? They brought Chris Reeve in so that I could talk it to him to get the mood right. It was one of the most mortifying experiences of my entire career. But I thought the final scene was beautiful. I cried, especially since it had been so physically painful to shoot. Williams confirms the sequence of events. Here's a John Williams quote. I remember the song very well. It was a melody first that I was sort of captivated with. Somewhere along the line, a decision was made to have a lyric set to it, and we asked Leslie Bercuse, who's brilliant, and he produced the title, Can You Read My Mind? and the lyric that goes with the melody that I had developed for the relationship between Margot and Chris. I remember we did a recording session in New York when Margot Kidder, who was not a singer, did her best to sort of vocalize with the orchestra, and I thought she did it very well. She's fantastic, a wonderful comedian, I always thought, and she read that thing with a wonderful whimsy, and I think she had it just right. Other people have sung it, some great singers have sung that since, but I remember Margot as being very touching in it. Wow. Just wow. Now, obviously I wasn't there, but reading between the lines here, that's a really tough position for Marco Kidder to be in. Now, we've talked about the movie industry's conventional wisdom on marketing a song and a movie together. It's always been such a moneymaker, and oftentimes this financial need would affect the creative. We talked about this when we covered Casablanca, for example. So the need for a hit song is certainly not unexpected. It's certainly not unprecedented. What is so unique about this story, however, is how Donner is insisting that it not be a different female voice over Margot Kidder's voice during the romantic flying scene. Perhaps that was his way of fighting for her, for her ownership of the role. I'm not sure. But it certainly created, as we just heard in that quote, a difficult dynamic, as Kidder herself said, she wasn't a singer. So what we ended up with is this speaking version, which as a kid I didn't even give second thought about. But as an adult, it's easy to understand why there was so much back and forth about how to execute this moment. Why wasn't the sequence trimmed down, for example? Why include it at all? Just cut it. Well, I speculate that this movie wasn't going to lose a second of flying footage, as that was the whole marketing campaign behind the movie— And this was a very pivotal scene to these characters. But still, is it a song, like a moment out of a musical? Well, I like to think that perhaps it was pulled back just enough. Perhaps this version, what ended up in the movie, helps give this movie more of a timeless quality. Perhaps singing this melody would have kept it forever stuck in 1978. Now, just to emphasize this point, We mentioned Williams prepared another arrangement of this music, which was prepped for a singer to come in and lay down a vocal track for. Let's take a listen to that. Wow, Fender bass guitar, drums, a phasey electric guitar, Fender Rhodes, that's about as 70s pop as you can get. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? I know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. In the end, Can You Read My Mind, or the love theme from Superman, emerged as a powerful melody and has become a timeless classic enduring well past the 1970s and it has the added bonus of coming with a fascinating behind the scenes story and now for a brief intermission we return now to the soundtrack show Ah, the march of the villains, Lex Luthor and his dumber-than-dirt sidekick Otis, played by Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty respectively. They have a perfect piece of music here, partially ominous, with its featured low-end instruments like the tuba or the bassoon, but plenty of humor. John Williams was no stranger to the tuba, as he had used it extensively in scores like Fitzwillie, Jaws, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. use it again for Jabba the Hutt's theme in Return of the Jedi a few years later. Here, he uses the tuba extensively. is another piece that Williams loved so much that he also turned this into its own concert arrangement. What does this tone? What does this theme say about our villains? Well, it's not very kind in terms of presenting them as a threat, is it? I mean, certainly they are, but it seems to me anyway that the greatest villain of all time and his sidekicks being portrayed in this way suggests that the evil that humankind is capable of comes from a place of folly of thoughtlessness, of buffoonery. Not that that buffoonery is without consequences, however. Lex Luthor launches nuclear missiles into the San Andreas Fault as part of a crazy scheme to create a new west coast with cheap land that he snatched up. He kills, temporarily at least, Lois Lane in the process, and by the way, puts together the fact that Kryptonite can kill Superman. So yeah, for a goofy villain, he can do a lot of damage. I guess danger comes with the superhero territory. But in Superman's case, The only thing that can kill him is a piece of his own origin story, his past. The only real threat at all to the Man of Steel is related to Krypton. So it makes sense, then, that Krypton's musical treatment in this film is by far the heaviest, most dread-inspiring music that we get. So this brings me to another musical theme that we hear in Superman. That is a theme for a powerful green crystal that Jorel sent to earth with his son one that unlocks the fortress of solitude and seemingly all of the teachings of the 28 known galaxies this theme has mystery and even with its delicate treatment with the flute carries quite a bit of dramatic weight it goes like this Now that's mystery. That is power. Lex Luthor? He's just an a**hole. But this, ah, this crystal, this MacGuffin that represents the good and evil and all the unknown in the universe that young Clark Kent, Kal-El, must contend with, such as where he comes from, the uncertainties he must face in order to become Superman, this is the potent, powerful stuff in this movie. It's interesting to note that much of young Clark Kent's journey to becoming Superman takes place in the Fortress of Solitude, this magical place that the crystal creates, off-screen. We don't really see it. But it is given extreme significance, extreme weight, and importance with the music. The theme is simple for the most part. It's fourths and octaves. It's kind of the inverse of Superman's eventual fanfare but almost a minor version of what becomes his march. If his march is this... ...these notes... ...that surround the fifth... ...if you make them sort of minor or modal versions of that... ...you can hear that it's related to the march. But we're left waiting for a resolution that Williams doesn't give us. That is, until Superman appears for the first time in full costume, and we see him fly out of the fortress. Our Man of Steel has finally been forged. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. In the last episode, I spoke quite a bit about the Americana influence, the Aaron Copeland influence on Superman's score. And that is all because of Smallville, Kansas, where Clark Kent is raised. It's here that we find out what's in Superman's heart. This is where he's coming from when fighting crime in Metropolis. He is us or an idealized version of us, of America, of what we aspire to be, truth, justice, the American way. So it is of monumental importance that John Williams gives us the emotional payoff we need when we watch Clark Kent become a young adult in Smallville and eventually leave home. The following piece of music will just break your heart. A melody slowly emerges on the flute. We're home on the Kents farm. Jonathan Kent gives his adopted son Clark some advice, and then they race each other home. His father collapses in a heart attack. We hear tubular bells signifying death. Melancholy chords play, and a bass note is heard a step lower, a similar technique to what he did in Jaws. And then, this melody again, this time on the French horn. So, so, so bittersweet, happiness engulfed in pain and loss. the strings have this smallville melody again eventually as we move to Kent senior's funeral the piece builds to a crescendo over the cemetery. And the strings sustain a ninth. A nice nod to Krypton. Let's break down this melody. An opening fifth. Followed by, yet again, another dance around that opening fifth. My friends, just as this piece is related to Krypton, this melody for Smallville, and the melody for The Crystal, The two forces in young Kal-El's life that will form the man he will become, Superman, they are related to the Superman March. Krypton, part one of our movie, and Smallville, the second act, Form our hero that goes to Metropolis. Williams is laying all of this information out to us in the music as it's being presented to us on screen. I want to close with another quote. Williams was nominated for an Oscar and a Grammy for Superman, by which time the score's memorable themes were as familiar as the ostinato from Jaws, the main theme from Star Wars, and the alien signal from Close Encounters. Williams returned to England in April 1979 to record Dracula at Anvil with Tomlinson and the LSO, which is where he recorded Superman. By which time, Superman was already appearing on re-recordings and being played at Pops concerts, parades, and football games, including Super Bowl XIII, just as Tom Minkowitz had envisioned. Williams had scored another classic, but it turned out that he was just getting started, as was Superman. End quote. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for writing all the emails and all your social media comments. I read every single one. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW, or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Also, send us an email at Soundtrack Show Podcast at gmail.com. That's Soundtrack Show Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.